We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking Ohio Water, Galaxy Tears, Tetris, Der Classica, Potter, U.S. Men's National Team and U.S. Women's National Team, Jersey Drop, Magic of the Open Cup, uh, Champions League Preview, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Monday, uh, April? What are we looking at here? What goodness, the third, the third of April. My goodness, in the year 2023. How you doing, my man? I am doing well, but I am missing you in the studio today because you are in Florida, correct? I am in the great state of Florida. I spend much time here. I know you spend a lot of time here, and it is great. Uh, and so, yes, for those that are watching, you can see that I am coming through on your screen. You are in our, well, our, our makeshift studio, but there's still, as we mentioned last pod, just so good that it's, we didn't even miss a beat. So uh, we are in, on different coasts here, but plenty of soccer. Are you watching anything, uh, my friend? Uh, a couple things. Another episode of Succession, which was phenomenal. I'm disappointed that our colleague Kat Donnelly is not here today. I want to discuss the episode with her. Um, also, I was uh, feeding to go to the movie theater this weekend, so I did go see Scream 6, uh, the latest installment of that franchise. Oh, Scream 6, really? Yeah. Yes. And are, are you able to <laughs> kind of keep it all straight? Uh, or, or If I hadn't seen Scream 4 or 2, for that matter, uh, would I still be able to go and enjoy myself? Yeah, it was interesting. The plot for this one is that uh, somebody put on that outfit and was slashing people to death. That's what they went with for this installment of it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But uh, but enjoyable, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I actually enjoyed that franchise. I've seen all of them. I know it's kind of stupid at this point that they're still making them, but uh, eh, it was good for two hours. I uh, watched Tetris, uh, this movie. Uh, you might be seeing the marketing around it because there's a big push from uh, the folks over there at Apple uh, because it's a uh, Apple-produced full-length movie about the, you remember the, uh, the video game Tetris, the rights or the race to get the rights to sell 
the Tetris game and it goes through all the history of the Game Boy and there's it goes through basically how the rights and the development happened in Russia from a guy in Russia and having to go over and to secure rights, not just in Russia, but from Russians and through the government. I, I thought this was going to be more interesting than it ended up being. Um, and they, you know, they try to inject, you know, the intrigue and, you know, the Russia factor and, uh, you know, the uh, the KGB and all that kind of stuff and the the treatment of a Westerner coming into Moscow and trying to do Western type of business with <laughs> with what was in place in Russia at the time. And it just it didn't quite work. It wasn't as interesting as I thought it was uh, it was going to be. There were some interesting, you know, uh, uh, nostalgic type of uh, things, you know, the Game Boy and the development of the Game Boy. And like I said, just a general race to get these things in people's hands and what Tetris was at the time worldwide and how addictive it was. That was kind of interesting to see how it was ultimately, well, how it was sold, but initially how it was developed and how addictive it became immediately and how people uh, people, people kind of came to it. Uh, did you play Tetris when it came out, Mossy? Uh, no, did not. No, you're not a Tetris guy. Uh, well, anyway, uh, so I, I give it like one thumbs up, not two thumbs up. But, uh, you know, it's not a complete waste of, uh, waste of time. Uh, should we light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. All right, where do you want to start? Major League Soccer, another okay. action-packed weekend. Uh, we're going to go Western Conference first and then the Eastern Conference. Um, should we take in the standings from the West uh, first? Uh, because Yeah, let's, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that just so we can uh, get the lay of the land here. And our, our, our friends from St. Louis, uh, although they suffered their first defeat ever, <laughs> uh, and certainly the first defeat of the uh, season, still sit at, at, uh, atop the uh, Western Conference with 15 points. Yeah, Seattle in second place, LAFC and Minnesota, who have played one fewer match, uh, round out the top four. The Galaxy near the bottom of the standings. Let's go there first. Uh, the LA Galaxy hosted Seattle. There was a celebrity on hand for this one. Producer Sean Sullivan attended this match. The Galaxy still without a win this season. They suffered a 2-1 home defeat. Uh, for Seattle, again, it was the Jordan Morris-Lao Chu combination. They supplied the goals. For Morris, uh, it was his eighth of the season. He leads the Golden Boot Race. He started at center forward again with Raul Ruiz Diaz on the bench. It'd be interesting to see how long that lasts. Jalen Neal scored for the Galaxy. Uh, what did you make of this one? Well, you know, Brian Schmetzer, by the way, in, uh, in winning, uh, becomes the third youngest coach in history to achieve 100 wins. You know, he took over, uh, what, 2016 and uh, he has just not missed a beat and grabbed it with both hands. And, you know, we talk about Schmetzer and, and uh, um, how uh, how awesome he is to talk to. If, you're gonna, if you ever get a chance to sit down with him, uh, he has an incredible history both on and off the field and his passion and emotion for that team and for American soccer, let's be honest, uh, just comes boiling up. And it's wonderful, uh, wonderful to see. Uh, he, right now he has got this team immediately back to where people expect this team to be. And keep in, keep in mind, this comes off of a of a last year where they didn't make the playoffs for the first time, although they won uh, Champions League. And so I think he is proving immediately that this was an anomaly uh, relative to Champions League and putting all of their eggs in that basket. And yes, some big uh, some big injuries, but they are flying. And he's, he's, like you said, changed some things up. I mean, Jordan Morris playing in that number nine position looks as comfortable as anybody in the league 
uh, playing that, uh, that striker position. And it is resulting in goals. They are winning at home. They are winning on the, on the road. They, they are scoring multiple goals. You know, they were certainly... I, I think they were gifted at least one. I thought Klinsman should have done much better on the long distance shot. Um, but, you know, they're creating their opportunities. Now, the, the other side of it is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, this is a Los Angeles Galaxy that is reeling. Yes, they don't have Chicharito, but everything can't simply apply to Chicharito. I know he's a good player, but look no, no further than what we're going to talk about here in a little bit with the loons where, you know, you you play with the cards that you're dealt and you make the best of the situation. And Greg Vanny and company right now are not doing that. Uh, the fans continue to protest um, the continuation of the leadership, whether it's Chris Klein uh, or uh, Jovan Karowski. Um, and now on the field, this is a team that is just looking like um, it's going to be a very, very long year. Now, Greg Vanny, uh, after the game, was adamant and angry about a missed call, what he perceived was a missed call. And I actually have some sympathy sympathy for him. And if you watch the play, uh, even if you didn't, uh, we, we see it time and time again, a cross comes in from the outside, a defender who is going out to attempt to block the cross puts his arms behind his back, which is now the norm for defenders in this modern age to defend with your hands behind your back. But in turning uh, to try to block the shot, he actually chicken <laughs> arms it, uh, chicken wings it there. And it would not have surprised me had that uh, had that been called. Having said that, if the defender has his or her arms behind the back, I mean, that the, the complete advantage goes to the attacking team there. So I, I get it that you're angry that that wasn't called, but you certainly had plenty of opportunities out there. And this is just not a good look for the Los Angeles Galaxy and continues to be a problem on and off the field with, with, uh, with what's going off the field. On the other side, as we said, Seattle is just flying right now. You mentioned that St. Louis, after five straight wins, brought back down to earth. They suffer a 1-0 home defeat to Minnesota. Amaria from the penalty spot with the only goal. The Loons, without Reynoso, unbeaten through five games. They've conceded only three goals. Adrian Heath was puffing his chest out after this one. He, he was very happy with his victory. As he should, and we talked about this last week, uh, that I thought the Loons kind of wanted St. Louis to continue the streak so that they could come into St. Louis and be the ones that broke it and kind of... Um, you know, as we said, uh, you know, the uh, crush that Cinderella type of tale that is going on here. And I think St. Louis knew that at some point this was going to come. The way in which it came with Minnesota being very, very comfortable, absorbing pressure and then just finding that moment. And as as entertaining as and as exciting as those St. Louis games are, whether it's Adrian Heath and the Loons or anybody else coming into St. Louis, they have absolutely no responsibility to entertain. All they have to do is find a way to get the win. And so this was actually, from a tactical perspective, um, very, very smart in what the Loons did. But there's a bigger picture when it comes to talking about what Minnesota is without Reynoso right now and that they have come together. And a lot of credit has to go to Adrian Heath for recognizing that Yes, they're better when they have Reynoso, but they're not going to have him. And right now, in the foreseeable future, this is not going to change. And so they have to make do with what they have. And he has done that and more on a continual basis now through a st still a very young season. But this is a absolute feather in the cap for the Loons to be, you know, the first team that that finds a way to beat this crazy juggernaut that was St. Louis. I don't think that St. This is going to, you know, completely bring St. Louis down to size, but you did see a potential template 
as to how to frustrate St. Louis. And it's not that like they didn't have opportunities there. They had a good chance to tie it there at the end, but ultimately the Loons with a huge, huge win. Uh, Colorado LAFC finished scoreless. I want to talk about a couple of LAFC players from a U.S. national team perspective, but anything to say about the match first? No. Uh, big news. Uh, LAFC Spanish midfielder Ilias Sanchez has obtained U.S. citizenship. People are already speculating about a potential U.S. national team call-up. We talked during this last window about the lack of depth at the sixth position with Tyler Adams out. They didn't really have a six in the squad. It's interesting that under Greg Berhalter, the backup six was another LAFC midfielder, Kellen Acosta. But with LAFC, Ilya plays as the six and Acosta plays as more of an eight. So uh, Ilya has already spoken about it. He said he'd be open to a call up. He would be very proud to represent the U.S. Uh, what do you think? I know he's in his 30s, but is this the player that the U.S. should look at? I mean, I don't think that. Well, first off, uh, Ilya Sanchez didn't get his passport in order to play with the U.S. men's national team. If that comes, that's great. And I think that he is of sufficient quality to at least take a look, even at, uh, you know, even, you know, past the age of uh, past the age of 30, especially with, you know, this this quote unquote MLS camp coming up where the U.S. is going to face Mexico in uh, a midweek game that doesn't fall within the uh, the FIFA window. And to your point, and I know some people were asking me on Twitter about Tyler Adams and how do you replace Tyler Adams? The, the reality is that you don't replace Tyler Adams. He is unique in what he does, and he does it at a level and a consistency that at least in my estimation, I don't think we have anybody that does that. So you can do it by committee. And we've seen the, the U.S. midfield kind of change, whether it's you know two in front of that back four, one in back in back four. And so you can do it like that. Um, but, you know, to your point, I think both Sanchez and Acosta will be up for this potentially coming in now and then going forward to the summer, if it works out to give uh, whoever the coach is going for, whether it's Hudson or anybody else, the option of uh, of some other uh, some other some other players. But you're not going to replace Tyler, uh, Tyler Adams. And look, when when Acosta came in, especially over the last year. He was involved in both of the uh, the uh, the trophies uh, under uh, under Greg Berhalter with the national team, and I know it's kind of a new cycle here right now. But I think he can work, but he does it in a different way. And the one thing that that, that Colin Acosta actually brings that is better than certainly a Tyler Adams, but I would argue even better than a Christian Pulisic and others, is uh, service. He consistently provides really really good service. So if set pieces, and I know we had a whole conversation about set pieces during the World Cup, if they ever actually become a thing again for the national team, the U.S. men's national team, uh, I like to have Kellen Acosta in there because I think he just consistently puts it in the places where it uh, needs to happen. You mentioned, uh, you asked me if I had anything to say about this game. I will say this to the Colorado Rapids who did that whole April Fools thing where they actually put out a. Uh, jersey that they said they were going to wear for their game. And it's an old, I can't remember, Colorado, Colorado Caribou game. And it actually has, you know, fringe on it. And it's just in, insane and crazy. But I actually liked it. And it was the most interesting and creative thing that the Colorado Rapids have done in a long time. So other than, uh, other than an April Fool's joke, that actually, sadly enough, was the most interesting thing that they uh, potentially could have done. Not a whole lot has to be said about this game. Uh, to go back to LAFC and the U.S. national team for one second, uh, we also got a tweet from somebody wondering why Ryan Hollingshead hasn't gotten more of a look from the national team. What do you think? Is he a player at those fullback positions that should factor in moving forward? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that you know, we should use this next year, let's say. And, when I, and again, it's hard because there's not a coach. But 
I, yeah, I mean, I think that he should be he should be looked at, and he's going to have plenty of of competition. And you know, yeah, it's you know another MLS player, so people will uh, will scream and yell. But I think he has done enough actually to be uh, to be called in to have a look at. And a reminder: the next U.S. game against Mexico, April nineteen, is outside of FIFA windows. So presumably that'll be an all MLS squad, so an opportunity for all these guys to get a look. All right, Mossy, uh, before we hear, we, we switch completely to the East here, I want to start the Eastern conversation off with Ohio and a little bit of love for what is going on in that state relative to the two soccer teams that they have. Uh, if hell is real, then I don't want to go to heaven because this is wonderful to watch. It's great for MLS. It's great for the uh, individual teams, whether it's Cincinnati or Columbus right now. Both of these teams are flying. Both of these teams are undefeated at home. Uh, both of these teams are finding ways to win. And in the you know, when it comes to Cincinnati, this is a recent expansion team that already has become elite. They are sitting on top of the East, uh, as I mentioned, undefeated at home, and they continue to win this weekend. And then Columbus just cannot stop uh, uh, scoring. And this version of Columbus in 2023 looks fun. And when we uh, when we see them come together for the first time, it is going to be must viewing. So there is something in the water in Ohio and whatever it is, uh, keep on drinking and because uh, we are being entertained from the outside. Well, you mentioned Cincinnati atop the Eastern Conference standings. Uh, let's check out the full standings right now for those of us watching us and not listening. Yeah, you see Cincinnati on top. Atlanta, New England, and Columbus round out the top four. And let's go to Cincinnati first because they picked up a 1-0 win over Inter-Miami. Mosqueda with the goal. The interesting thing here is Pat Noonan not happy with the way Cincinnati have played so far this season. It hasn't been the attacking juggernaut that everyone expected after last season. Uh, but nevertheless, they're finding ways to win without being at their best, which is a good sign. Yeah, I mean, I always find it kind of performative when uh, coaches after a win scream and yell and and say this wasn't good and we got to be better and all. I mean, I, I, I get it. Uh, I understand. And I think... <laughs> It's easy to do that after you have won and you end up looking like uh, you're more big picture and you end up looking like you you expect more. And in many senses, maybe maybe you do. This certainly wasn't the best performance. And I think Pat under understood that. But ultimately, they, uh, you know, they got the win and the mark of a good team is still when you don't play well to still be able to. Uh, to pull out uh, to pull out a victory, but you know, I think he recognizes that some of the stuff. I and mean, you know, I, at one point in his interview, he said well, we weren't prepared. Well, that's on you. And I know he kind of took responsibility, but again, it's it's a little self serving when you take responsibility after uh, after you know after a win. But you know, he knows who exactly who he is playing to. And by the way, we got a lot of time for Pat. I think he's done a great job, and I think he is potentially uh, in the future going to be a great coach. Uh, and certainly for the man in this moment for Cincinnati, for what they are, he, uh, along with Chris uh, Albright coming over, have fundamentally changed the perception of this team that was so bad when it first came online. And now it's so good. And according to uh, to Pat, can certainly, uh, certainly be better. Uh, New England NYCFC finished 1-1. Carlos Hill gave New England the lead. They thought they had gone up by two goals, but they had a goal chalked off by VAR, which Bruce Arena was not happy about. And then Talis Magna, who played more on the left wing in this game, uh, he scores from a header off a corner, so they share the points. 
Yeah, Bruce wasn't happy. And, you know, there was there were plenty of uh, controversial calls this weekend, including this one. And even if you didn't see it, you you know, you've seen this type of play before where a ball comes into the box and there was actually a player in an offside position. The question was, was this player interfering and in particular interfering with the goalkeeper and his line of sight and therefore his ability to ultimately save the ball that came through, by the way, off of a deflection off of uh, off of a defender. And so I get being angry, but Ultimately, NYCFC very easily could have found a way to win this game. Uh, they didn't close up shop. They continued to play well and actually at times were the better team. And so I think Bruce Arena, if he really looks at it honestly, um, they were probably lucky to get out of there. Well, not getting out of there because they're, they're at home. But uh, that one point that they got against NYS, NYCFC, they're probably lucky to get that. Atlanta 1-0 over the Red Bulls. The lone goal courtesy of Giacomakis. Yeah, it was a gift, you know, a Greek gift. <laughs> and, you know, uh, don't look a gift or don't look a Greek gift horse in the mouth, whatever. Uh, it fell into his lap and it's nice for him to get off. And by the way, it turned out to be very, very important. You know, this Atlanta team, I'm not ready to say that they are are great, but they are certainly better than they were uh, were last year. And again, finding a way uh, ultimately, uh, ultimately to win. And um you know, when you bring in new players, obviously you want them to work. And sometimes it takes time. When you bring in new players that are goal scorers, the only real way that it works is when they are scoring goals. And whether it's a bomb or just a tap-in, as it was for Giacomacus, wonderful. That's uh, that's great, and that sends him on his way, hopefully from an Atlanta perspective. There are three unbeaten teams in MLS right now, Cincinnati, LAFC, and Minnesota. I'm very curious to see where you're going to place them in your next edition of Tears. Yeah, later on this week, uh, we'll do the Tears again, uh, and we'll have our three different tiers. And you will see, as we mentioned when we did it for the first time, how things have changed. And some of the preseason preconceptions uh, of what these teams were going to be, some of them have worn out and some of them have fallen flat on their face and this will as you will see uh be relative to what has happened in still a very early season but you know everybody wants to be in that top tier and not everybody can be in that top tier and let's be honest there's some that don't even deserve to be in that third tier maybe i have to make a fourth uh, a fourth tier for how bad they uh, uh, they have been anything else mossy from an mls perspective well, we have some MLS teams involved in CCL this week, so we'll transition to that. The quarterfinal okay. first legs are this week. All four matches on FS1. I'm looking forward to covering them. On Tuesday, we have the lone MLS versus League MX matchup in this round. Philadelphia will face Atlas. First leg is in Philly. Uh, Philadelphia, not as impressive so far this season as I expected. Just one point from their last three games. Atlas coming off a 3-3 draw against Chivas in the Derby. We know they're a team that uh, recently won back-to-back Liga MX titles at 21 Apertura, 22 Clausura to end the seven-year drought. They have Julio Fuchs leading the line, so this would be an interesting one. It was interesting to hear Jim Curtin kind of talk about the struggles that they have had this season. And look, everything that Jim Curtin has t- touched pretty, pretty much has turned to gold, and it has always been very very rosy for him, and certainly last year. Um, And so trying to recapture that, and this is where managers, it's not about the X's and O's. And at one point, I think, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he talked about how things are contagious within a team. And 
that, you know, believing or not believing or worrying or anxiety or all those types of things that can be as contagious as winning or as success or as doing well. And when you have come to expect things to go right through things that you can put your hand on and things that you can't put your hand on, and then it doesn't happen. You know, that's where the real coaching happens. And so this is, you know, from a Jim Curtin perspective, again, fighting on multiple fronts, he's going to have to find a way to nip that, uh, that contagion, if you will, and make sure that his players understand all of the accolades and praise that they have gotten over the years have come for because of X, Y, and Z. And either you get back to X, Y, and Z if you're if you're not there, or you find a new X, Y, and Z in this day in, in this day in 2023, which might be different than 2022 uh, for Jim and the Philadelphia Union. Also on Tuesday, Leon will host Violette. It should be noted, Violette had no issues obtaining visas to enter Mexico. They will have their full <laughs> squad available. So this is apparently a uniquely American problem. What a bad look for the United States, which is supposed to be this welcoming country. Horrible, horrible that we uh, uh, you know, hold other uh, governments and countries and cultures to account. And I know there's hypocrisy in that, but uh, so, uh, so be it. Um, well, look, look Violette is the, is the Cinderella team, and we saw what happened with... Uh, uh, with them against Austin and and credit to all of the players and the staff for uh, for what they did. But now everybody knows exactly who they are. And sometimes when your back's against the wall, it's when you do your best work. And it's not that they're not also going to be a Cinderella uh, and an underdog type in this. But to your point, you know, they got all the players at their disposal. So that's not an excuse anymore. On Wednesday, we have an all-MLS matchup. Vancouver will host LAFC in the first leg. Vancouver coming off a 5-0 weekend win over Montreal. They have an emerging star in Simon Betcher. What do you think about this one? Well, at this point, beating Montreal is no big thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's uh, it could work against you because it can give you a false sense of security. Because Vancouver looked awesome, right? And to your point... Uh, you know, new stars emerging. Uh, in my expert opinion, Mossy, LAFC is a very, very different type of uh, team to come up against than uh, than Montreal. So I think Vancouver, which I don't think is a very good team, is going to have their hands full in a home and away against LAFC. And then uh, Montagua of Honduras, who took out Pachuca in the last round, they now face another Mexican side and Tigres, uh, they will host the first leg. Tigres, overwhelming favorites to advance here. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, our, our friend uh, Eric Winalda has a uh, article in The Guardian this past week, and, and in it, he was talking about a lot of different things about American soccer. But, you know, as Eric is prone to do, he kind of weaved all, all over the place. But at one point, he was talking about how you know, Major League Soccer has been kind of the architect of American soccer's demise to a certain extent because they have enabled so many players to get experience uh, and have helped and brought up not just national teams, but other other leagues and 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 individual uh, individual players here. And so this is I don't look at this as a bad thing from a U.S. soccer perspective. Eric argues that this is a bad thing, but from a CONCACAF perspective and a competitive and a um a tournament perspective, if you will, for CONCACAF Champions League, this is good. As much as we focus on the U.S. and Mexico and being the two big dogs in Canada as part of Major League Soccer, um, there are you know lots of other leagues out there 
that need resources and that need success to build on. And so having teams from outside the big two slash three, when you include Canada, do well, while it might be painful in the moment, because if you're a Canadian or U.S. team, you look around and say, hey, this isn't supposed to happen. Well, times are changing and other teams are, are, are believing and they have the confidence. And most importantly, they have the talent. And maybe that talent came from all of the things that Mexico and Canada uh, and the United States have been doing. But doesn't matter where it came from. Ultimately, it's good for the uh, for the tournament and good for CONCACAF. Yeah, our friend Eric Winaldo, who flaked out on me in Vegas a couple weeks ago, we were supposed to get together and uh, <laughs> he never made it. Well, uh, do check it out. Do, do check out the article because he, you know, he has some interesting points. I don't agree with with all of the points, but some of the stuff uh, is actually interesting. And, you know, if I had a crit critique of it, you know, it's it, it's easy to say what's wrong. It's a little harder um, and rare, to be quite honest with you, to actually provide specific detail as to what needs to be done. Um, well, but but check it out. It's fun. Well, perhaps we'll have him on to debate you on on the article. Uh, sure. Uh, back to CCL for one second. The bracket, just to let people know. So if uh, Leon gets past Violet, which I expect, and Tigres takes care of Motagua, then uh, Tigres and Leon would square off in one semifinal. And then the other side of the bracket the LAFC Vancouver winner faces the Philadelphia Atlas winner. So if Philadelphia were to beat Atlas, and there are no surprises otherwise, then it, we would be guaranteed an MLS versus League MX final because one semifinal would be all League MX and then the other one would be all MLS. So we'll keep an eye for that. I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. I'm good with that. Br bring it on. You know, I mean, if this is about the superpowers, then let the superpowers meet and, and duke it out. That's it. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll take a trip around uh, Europe and all the happenings there and take a look ahead. So don't go anywhere. All right, welcome back. All right, Mossy, let's take a trip around uh, Europe. Where do you want to start over there? Uh, we'll begin in Germany with their classicer, uh, Bayern Munich in Thomas Tuchel's first match in charge, picking up a 4-2 win over Borussia Dortmund in a game that was not as close as the score. Bayern jumped out to a 4-0 uh, early second half lead and then kind of took the foot off the gas. Uh, Dortmund scored a couple goals late to dress up the scoreline a little bit, but this was pretty one-sided stuff. The first Bayern goal came about due to an unbelievable mistake by the Dortmund goalkeeper, Kobel. Then Muller scored twice. Coban then made it four early in the second half. An Emery Chan penalty and Daniel Malin, like I said, scored late to dress up the scoreline. But uh, a pretty authoritative win, which puts Bayern two points clear of Dortmund at the top of the table and in pole position to win their 11th straight Bundesliga title. I mean, this was a huge game. This was circled. This was talked about as the defining game of the season. And now you're looking at a Bayern Munich team that now has retaken the, uh, the lead and has the momentum and, as you said, in a definitive type of way, beat their only real competition. And they have a new coach and they're still in, in Champions League. So this was this was a huge insert word statement game, if that's what you uh, wanted to uh, wanted to call it. And it was it, it, I, if, if I'm Dortmund or if I'm a Dortmund fan, I'm disappointed. It's not that you can't lose to Bayern, Bayern Munich. As a matter of fact, for the most part, you're kind of expected to do that. And yes, you've had your blips and you thought this was one another one of those blips. But the way in which it ultimately happened. And the game was, for all intents and purposes, put out of uh, out of sight in that first half. It was done and dusted and everybody moved on. It was, you know, Derek 
plaster kaput. You know, it wasn't anything to be excited about. It wasn't the the sense of drama that I think a lot of people expected in this moment. And so we're left with, does Dortmund have anything left in them? Does Bayern Munich have a hiccup along the way? Otherwise, it's a fait accompli, and we are kind of right back where we started, although we were teased through this year. Uh, incidentally, Gio Reyna did not play due to illness, although, uh, as Derek Ray said on the telecast, it's not like he was playing much anyway. Derek taking a little <laughs> shot at Gio. Um, wow. Wow. At the same time that Bayern was beating Dortmund, uh, Thomas Tuchel's former club, Chelsea, suffered a 2-0 home defeat to Aston Villa, Watkins, and McGinn with the goals. Uh, Christian Pulisic was a doubt because of illness as well, but ended up making the bench, came on for the last 10 minutes, barely touched the ball, and this result spelled the end for Graham Potter, who was sacked the following day. Uh, Brendan Rodgers sacked by Leicester as well, incidentally. So that's now 12 managers sacked in the Premier League this season, which sets an all-time record. Uh, Potter departs Chelsea after just 31 matches in charge. Uh, Pretty forgettable spell. Um, And so Christian Pulisic will have a new manager. They've appointed Bruno Sartor as an interim. They had to get somebody in place because they have a midweek game against Liverpool coming up. Uh, But they're already being linked to Julian Nagelsmann as a permanent replacement. So we'll see what happens there. Oof. I mean... Did Potter ever look the part? And I, I think you could probably have a discussion. I, I would argue he he didn't. Um, you know, this is a Chelsea team. Uh, you know, and and, I, and you can see his uh, he he's been put through the grinder. Keep in mind that I, I think if you look at the win percentage, like Rude Hulet had a better win percentage than Potter, so it, it obviously did not go well for him. And you can argue, and I'm sure he will argue, yes, but look at you know, the Artetas and stuff like that. But even Arteta gave you something to hang on to. And ultimately, there was nothing left to hang on to. This was a team that, despite the money, despite the talent, uh, despite the quality that few coaches around the world would pass up and would gladly change to be in charge of, he couldn't get it to work. And as Chelsea, what what they are or, and what they have been, you know, even under under Roman, which, you know, firing, firing coaches wasn't a, a big deal for Roman Abramovich either. But this is, a, this is an elite team that, yes, has that beautiful arrogance. And that arrogance is not only in terms of the, the players on the field, but in terms of the fandom and the supporters off the field. And, yes, in terms of the coaches and the managers. And there is, a, there is an air, even in the moments of failure, there is an air of supremacy and there is an air of, you know, aristocracy, if you will. Uh, and Potter never kind of, he never had that. I don't know if if it's just something he would never have or he couldn't find a way to muster it in this uh, in this moment. You can see that this is a team that... Ha- is lost. You can see that this is a, a a team that Potter has lost. And so this makes complete sense. This is not going in the right direction. And look, they've already shown that money is no object, not that it ever was before, but if it's a problem, fix it now and pay the money that you have to and go get the person that you think is going to come in. And and by the way, it does it has nothing to do with being English or or anything like that. You can you can not have that gravitas 
from wherever you come from, whether it's England or some uh, someplace else. And you know it when you see it. You can uh, you can feel it, and it just never really clicked uh, clicked for him. And so I'll be interested to read his book or <laughs> hear hear his uh, Potter. I'm talking about his uh, his interviews as to what he ultimately thought did him in and what the problem was because he can't blame money he can't blame talent and yes he had a big squad but like i said that's you know that that's not something that you would uh is going to fly in terms of the reasons or the complaints and with all due respect to graham potter i would not read his book if he were to write one um but uh <laughs> on the american front um we know in the English media there's an anti-American bias, and before Todd Bowley even walked in the door, they were already portraying him as this rube. But unfortunately, he's kind of validating that view because this has been a very chaotic start to his reign. As you mentioned, there's some romanticism now of the Roman Abramovich era. There were plenty of head-scratching moments there as well. But I don't know. This has not been a great start for American Todd Bowley in charge of Chelsea, sacking two managers in a few months here and the team mired in 11th place in the table. And the sense that they're, yeah, he's spending money, but kind of willy-nilly, and the players he's brought in aren't really performing. And oh, come on, that's man. that's come the part. On. That's the part you don't you object to. Well, no, I, I I don't. Yeah, I reject that. In that Roman Abramovich was willy-nilly. He he spent ridiculous amounts of money, and yes, it it translated into a team that won. And when it didn't win or wasn't heading in the right direction, he came in and was ruthless. And so Todd Bowley is is being ruthless. Now, is it is it ruthless because he recognizes the mistakes that either he made or th that others made for him? Fine, it doesn't doesn't really matter. But if Roman was doing the exact same things right now, I I don't think by any stretch of the imagination people would be screaming and yelling about the rube uh, or the uh, delusion or. Um, you know, the inability to to understand what he and I'm talking about Todd has gotten himself uh, into and that American part of it would never be applied uh, if Roman was doing this type of stuff. On Pulisic, I don't think this fundamentally alters the dynamic. I still think he's probably going to leave in the summer, but you never know. Every time there's a coaching change, if they do bring in somebody like a Nagelsmann, he might take a liking to Pulisic, and if Pulisic plays and plays well at the end of this season, maybe it, he decides to stay. We'll see. Uh, I still maintain, I know we, we did a segment about this a while back, that the two best landing spots for Pulisic are Newcastle and AC Milan. And if you're worried about those teams being in the Champions League next season, both took big steps this weekend. Newcastle beat Manchester mm -hmm. United 2-0 to move up to third, pending Everton's result against Tottenham today, or I should say Tottenham's result against Everton. Uh, and then in Serie A, AC Milan 4-0 away win over Napoli to surge up to third there. That's interesting because those two are about to play in the Champions League quarterfinals. By the way, that was my cheeky way to sneak in those two results that Sean Sullivan did not put in the rundown <laughs> under the guise of being a Pulisic uh, topic. Uh, but so, yeah, Chelsea, we'll see what, who they bring in. We'll see what that means for Christian Pulisic through the rest of the season. And then in the summer, lots to sort out there for a team mired in 11th in the Premier League table. Um, Anything Speaking else? of sorting out things, uh, they're going to sort that uh, stuff out up there in uh, Liverpool? Yeah, so let's transition to the title race. Uh, early on Saturday, uh, Manchester City hammered Liverpool 4-1. Liverpool actually took the lead through Mo Salah, but then City scored four unanswered. Alvarez equalized, and then De Bruyne, Gundogan, and Grealish in the second half. This was pretty one-sided stuff. The interesting thing here from a Manchester City perspective is Erlen Holland did not play, 
And listen, um, I don't want to overstate this point because Erlen Holland is unbelievable. The amount of goals he scored this season is ridiculous. And we, a couple of pods ago, we were talking about him possibly winning the Ballon d'Or. And he could be the missing piece for City winning the Champions League this season because I do think he brings an element to that team that they lacked in previous years that's very beneficial. But this was another indication that it hasn't been a perfect marriage because this City team is actually designed more to play this way with a mobile, versatile center forward like Alvarez who can interchange with other players. This was actually the most fluid I've seen City against like a top opponent all season. It kind of felt like the Manchester City of the previous couple of years that they were a joy to watch in this game. So are you saying that, that Pep has looked, whether he will say it publicly or not, when this potential of him coming... Uh, when Erlen Holland coming to Man City, Pep would look at it as, okay, but this is a luxury player. This is so I can just throw a different look in there. I mean, because if if what you're saying is true, is in that this is the way that Man City should play. This is ultimately when they are at their best. And it doesn't include Erlen Holland. Then why spend that money and bring the player in? Is it just because you can? Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I still think he brings an element that they lacked. If you go back to their last Champions League game against Leipzig, where, by the way, he scored five goals in 50-something minutes, none of the goals came about through neat buildup. They were all scrappy center-forward goals, the ball pinging around the box and him being in the right place in the right time. And, oh, and rebounds. No, no, no. I'm, oh, I'm, you I'm, I'm praising him for that. This is a City team. That was a, a weakness, I thought, in past years, the fact that they can only play this pretty style, but when they have to grind out a goal, they don't, they're not equipped to do so. I think Holland has brought that element to that team, which serves them well, which might be the difference in them winning the Champions League this season. But it is sort of an imperfect fit that's it's working because City are so good and Holland are so good. But if you think about the way that City team was designed to play the last few years, Holland isn't the type of center forward that you'd look at as the most natural fit. It's just he's so good that everybody's sort of making it work. Right, but everybody that, well, 90% of the teams that Man City comes up against, right, are going to recognize that they're not going to have the ball, are going to recognize that they're going to have to pull in and, um, and bunker, right? So... If that's grinding out a result, so when does when is it appropriate to play Aaron Holland? All of those games? Yeah. And not in the three or four games where you're actually going to play somebody that is going to go head-to-head with you or toe-to-toe with you? No, I think you always play him because the, the, the good outweighs the bad of having a player with his goal-scoring ability in the lineup, but it just means that it's not the, the overall function of the team is not quite as fluid. But I mean, what Why he, would you play somebody... That you just told me doesn't give you the best chance at playing your best soccer and your most successful soccer. I don't understand that. Because the element he brings is so valuable that you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of that fluidity for the goal scoring that he adds. I don't know. That's the best way I can explain it. <laughs> All right. All right. Shall we uh, move on? Any other scores you want to talk about yeah, over there? I will say I tweeted this. Uh, I want to mention on the podcast. Uh, watching both City and Bayern play on the same day left me salivating for that Champions League quarterfinal tie. Uh, that is one of mm-hmm. the most delicious Champions League matchups in years. I cannot wait for those two teams to collide. Uh, so by City beating Liverpool, they put some pressure on Arsenal, who played later in on Saturday against Leeds. But Arsenal took care of their business. 4-1 win over Leeds at the Emirates. Gabriel Jesus with two goals. Ben White and Shaka got the others. Uh, so the gap remains eight. It is a deceptive eight, though, because City have a game in hand uh, and the two teams still play head-to-head at the Etihad. 
So City, just by virtue of winning that game in hand, and if they beat Arsenal head-to-head, they would knock it down to two. Plus, right now, they have a better goal difference in Arsenal. So I know you like to poke Arsenal fans by framing it as if it would take a collapse at this point for them not to win it. But that's not really the case. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a deceptive stop. eight-point game. Oh, please, <laughs> stop. <laughs> Even with what you, what you mentioned, with the game in hand and the, and the head-to-head and all that kind of stuff, it would take an absolute and utter historical type of collapse for them to let this out of their hand. It is sitting in their hand. All they have to do is close it. And this weekend, they didn't look like uh, they have any intention of letting it get out of their hand. But it would still, even with that, uh, yeah, it, it if... If Piers Morgan and co are not celebrating and uh, champagning and cigaring and uh, uh, double-decker busing it through through, uh, London to celebrate the title at the end of this year, something massive and historically massive and bad will have happened. So the flip side of that Arsenal result was Leeds. And this gets us into a good idea cooked up by Sean Sullivan. There are a lot of prominent U.S. national team players who are battling relegation in their respective leagues. So we're going to whip through them right now, beginning with Leeds. This result against Arsenal uh, left them in 17th place, pending the result later today between Everton and Tottenham. Everton could leapfrog Leeds and put him in the bottom three. Um, So my question for you is, if Leeds were to go down, what does that mean for Adams, McKinney, and Aronson? Adams, incidentally, missed this weekend's game with an injury. McKinney came off the bench. He was also battling illness. I don't know what was going on in that U.S. camp, but they all came back sick. Aronson started. So my question would be, uh, is there any one of those three that you think would actually go down to play in the championship, or have they earned enough of a status that clearly some quality club in a top-flight uh, league would uh, would go sign them? Yeah, I think a lot of the players that we're going to talk about here are their value or their potential to go someplace and to to step up is not necessarily tied to the, the the relegation problems that they're having. I think that they will be looked at as bright spots within a darkness, if you will. Um, I think McKenney, uh, I think Tyler Adams, um, and yeah, if Aronson would be an interesting one because I'm not sure. I think there's an appreciation for him, but he never really. He kicked on from that first uh, uh, that first part, but yeah, I I think that they are all going to be fine if leads go down. In that, I think that there are going to be teams that uh, that want them. I think it would be most likely that someone like Aronson continued on in the championship, uh, but I think McKenney and Tyler Adams would look to uh, greener pastures, and more importantly, there would be those that would be looking to bring them to greener pastures. In Spain, Yunus, Musa, and Valencia, 19th in the table. Uh, they're in serious danger of going down. But Musa is a player I imagine you yeah. think would find a nice landing spot, a, a good club, uh, Valencia go down. Don't care if Valencia goes down relative to Yunus Musa because he is a bright, shining star. He's young. I think there is a general recognition of his quality. Obviously, he's just played in a World Cup, and I think that it, it, there were already people, I think, not just kicking the tires that are salivating over the potential of Yunus Musa to bring them uh, to bring to a club. So he would I don't, I would I don't think he would have any problem for for Valencia would be bad. But for Yunus Musa, it's it's neither here nor there. Uh, Ricardo Pepe is interesting. He continues to play well for Gonergan, scored this past weekend, coming off a good international window where he got three goals in two games for the U.S., got the winner against El Salvador coming off the bench. 
Uh, but Groningen as a team struggling. They're 17th out of 18 teams in the Eredivisie, seven points out of safety, so looking like they might go down. Remember, Pepe is there on loan from Augsburg. Augsburg seven points clear of safety, um, seven points above the relegation zone in Germany. However, uh, Fabrizio Romano has just tweeted, and uh, Sean Sullivan expertly adding this to the rundown as we speak, uh, that there's no chance of Pepe going back to Augsburg. Because you were wondering, boy, if, if Augsburg stay up, maybe he goes back there and gives it another shot in the Bundesliga. Uh, what you're hearing now is he's been so impressive for Groningen that big Dutch teams like PSV and Feyenoord are interested in him, and he might be leaning that way. So would that be a good move for him to stay in the Netherlands, a league he's taken well to, but going to a better club that's going to be challenging for titles in that country? Well, we know that he would not certainly be the first nor the last striker to use the Netherlands as a platform from which to go on to bigger and better things. Uh, the history is long uh, and incredibly talented. Uh, the reason why he was loaned out was to get his mojo back. As a striker, your mojo is relative to scoring goals. He is doing it. He is doing it uh for a team that obviously, as we said, is is uh, worried about relegation. So it's not a great team. It's not a team that's going to have a lot of the ball. If you saw the goal that he scored this weekend, came across his body and he had one thing that he was going to do and he was going to shoot that. That is a sign of a guy that is incredibly confident. So it doesn't surprise me in the least that those that are watching him week in and week out, <clears throat> uh, the PSVs and the, and the Feinhorns uh, and this level of team would say, hey, Look, we're already seeing what this guy is is doing uh, week in and week out. We will absolutely uh, look at uh, look at that. So that he is not going back to Augsburg, I, I don't think that should worry anybody because I think that there are others that are going to come along and recognize that, all right, he has gotten his mojo back and we want some of that mojo. Uh, do you still consider John Brooks a U.S. national team relevant player? Brooks? No. Well, uh, Sean Sullivan does because he included him in, in this list. Uh, for what it's worth, Hoffenheim are 15th in the Bundesliga, three points above the relegation uh, playoff spot. Uh, Hoffenheim, remember, are managed by an American, Pellegrino Matarazzo, so he's also fighting to stay in the Bundesliga. But so you're not all that interested if Brooks stays up or down. To, to you, he's sort of out of sight, out of mind as far as the U.S. national team. No, I mean... <laughs> That Brooks is playing, it's, that's good. But I think we all know that he's coming to the end of his career. His career. And so, yeah, it's it's not, I don't think it has anything relative to the uh, the national team because I don't think that Brooks is going to be part of the, uh, of the future. So, no. Now, there are some Americans fighting to get promoted to the Premier League via the championship. Let's uh, touch on those. You've got uh, Zach Steffen, who is at Middlesbrough on loan from Manchester City. They are third right now in the championship. And then you've got Ethan Horvath, who is at Luton Town on loan from Nottingham Forest, who, by the way, are fighting to stay up. Um, so uh, Luton Town are fourth. So if the season were to end today, Middlesbrough and Luton Town would both be in that relegation, in that promotion playoff, excuse me. Um, what do you make of those situations? Well, if your team went up, Mossy, uh, from the uh, championship to the premiership, would you be comfortable all season having Ethan Horvath as your uh, starting goalkeeper? I would not. Right. So, I mean, that's the, the calculation. This has nothing to do with Ethan Horvath as, a, as an American or anything like that. But the calculation for these teams that go up is that, all right, this is a whole nother level. And we have to decide, do we have what is good enough to compete or do we have to upgrade? And oftentimes it's no, it's not good enough. While it got us there. It's still not good enough. I think it would, might be a, a different type of conversation when it comes to 
to Zach Steffen. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that he would get more of the benefit of the doubt. And I think that Middlesbrough might say, if he continues on, I mean, who knows what, you know, what the, the loan situation and stuff like that, but if he were to continue on and be the starting goalkeeper for Middlesbrough in a championship or in a premiership capacity, I think that they would be more comfortable than, uh, than Ethan or- Orvath. So it really comes down to who's a better goalkeeper, Ethan Horvath or, uh, or Zach Steffen in a premiership type of setting. And Luton Town had a nice win over Watford this weekend, 2-0. Horvath picking up a clean sheet there. Uh, one other player to mention is Josh Sargent at Norwich. He's cooled off a bit, uh, just two goals in 15 games since the World Cup. Remember, he had that great spell leading into the World Cup, which got everybody excited, got him on the squad. Uh, Norwich fell to Sheffield United this past weekend. They are now in seventh place in the championship, one spot out of the promotion playoffs. If Norwich were to stay in the championship, do you think Josh Sargent has shown enough to perhaps get a move to a top-flight club? Would that even serve him well? Would he be better served at this point staying at Norwich, playing another season in the championship, a place where he's getting to play some center forward and scoring some goals and, and getting reps at that position? You wonder what the long-term best move for him. I suspect if he got an offer from a Premier League team, he wouldn't be able to turn it down, but you wonder if, if that's always the right move. Yeah, I mean, if he got an offer, but I don't think he's getting an offer. I don't think that he has shown the consistency or the quality where people say, yeah, this is something that I that I have to have. And I don't think it would be the worst move for him from an individual perspective or even for the national team. Again, that you're playing in the championship doesn't preclude you from playing on the national team. And I don't look at it, I, I look at it completely two different things. I look at this player in Josh Sargent, are you scoring goals? And are you doing it consistently wherever wherever it is? No, yes, where you are playing matters. But in this in this situation, especially given uh, you know the lack of strikers and consistent strikers up there, if we have somebody that is scoring goals regardless of where it is, you know that's a good thing. That's it. Uh, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's take another quick break, and when we come back, ooh, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your questions. You can use that hashtag Ask Alexi if you're sending them in on the uh, social media platforms. Keep in mind that our handle over there on social media, all the social media platforms over there are SOTU with Alexi. Or you can call in to our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. What do the people want to hear this episode, Mossy? Uh, we have a voicemail and a tweet. Let's hear the voicemail now. Hi, this is Colby from Mississippi. I was calling because I was looking at the U.S. Open Cup uh, schedule and saw who came out the first round and noticed that the Rochester Rhinos went defunct, uh, which well, I didn't know anything about them other than I remembered that they were the only non-MLS or Division One team to ever win the Lamar Hunt U.S. Open. And was wondering if you had any experience playing against them, uh, if you have any memories of the Rochester Rhinos, uh, and if you ever think that another non-MLS team will win the U.S. Open Cup. And if so, who probably would have the best chance? All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. Uh, thank you, Colby. Uh, and an interesting question. Um, and comments about Rochester. And I, I think we've talked about this a couple of years ago, Mossy, about what 
what Rochester once was relative to soccer, men's and women's, uh, and certainly back in the day, and when I say the day, I mean back in the previous century when yours truly was running around, Rochester was the uh, the the place to be. And I think a lot of people looked at it as it was a soccer town. It was a town that, uh, from a professional standpoint, gave the players an incredible environment to play in, an incredible environment to live in. And it now is kind of, as everybody else has gone on and overtaken Rochester, looked at as an afterthought. Uh, you know, to your point, uh, Rochester soccer has continued on. The um, the folding of clubs is a sad but unfortunately expected occurrence. Anybody that's been around long enough in American soccer uh, will have been through the um, the contraction of leagues, the folding of entire leagues, the folding of individual clubs. Professional American soccer is not for the faint of heart. There are business realities both on and off the field that you come face to face with very, very quickly. And some are able to weather that storm and some recognize that it is not a storm that is worth weathering, especially when it comes to the, um, you know, the financial realities of what professional soccer is. Uh, I remember Rochester and trips to Rochester, and I've taken them over the course of my lifetime and certainly over my career as a player, as an analyst, um, in, much of, in a bunch of different capacities. And the, the people are wonderful there. They still have a wonderful history, and they still have a wonderful love for the game. And I think that there was a hope that Rochester would kind of reinvent itself and become, well, let's be honest, kind of what we have seen happen with St. Louis. Keep in mind, St. Louis was once the mecca of American soccer. And then everybody caught up and passed them and time moved and time moved on and time moved past St. Louis. And now we have re-embraced St. Louis for what it is. I don't know if that same thing can happen in the future when it comes uh, comes to Rochester. Uh, Rochester and St. Louis are very different types of cities. But uh, to your point, back in 99 or whenever it was that Rochester became that uh, lower division team that won the Lamar Hunt Open Cup, remember Yari Allnut and those types of players up there. It was wonderful to see. And in the same way that I talked earlier about other teams that aren't from Canada, the United States, and Mexico doing well in tournaments, whether it's international tournaments or domestic club tournaments, that's that's important. Um, you know, we talk a lot about parity in the game, and in particular when it comes to the manufactured parity in Major League Soccer. You want others doing well. You want lower level, um, second division, whatever you want to call it. And even that, I I hesitate to call it that because while while they are sanctioned uh, when it comes to USL Championship, for example, as as second division, they don't all operate like that. As a matter of fact, many of them operate in the way that first division teams would operate. Um, but you want it to be competitive and you want those Cinderella stories uh, to happen. And so when you look at, for example, the USL and you know teams like Birmingham and teams like Pittsburgh and teams like uh, Louisville and Sacramento and San Antonio and San Diego and all of these teams that and these communities that have embraced soccer through USL, 
the only time that you can come in contact with MLS, which is above you, quote unquote above you, is through the Lamar Hunt Open Cup. And this gives the opportunity to prove what the reality is on the ground. And that, yes, there is a separation uh, in terms of whether it's the amount of money spent, um, the amount of resources available. Yes, there is a separation. The question is how much of a separation? And for your individual team, it might be much less than people perceive. But the only way that you get that credit and that credibility is when those moments come where you are playing against an MLS team and a quote-unquote better, bigger, higher team, if you make the most of it and you bring attention to yourselves by beating what people assume are better quality teams. And so, you know, any of the teams that I just named out there on any given day, and really what is a tournament and what is Lamar Hunt Open Tournament uh, Cup Tournament, it's about on any given day that happening. You need the stars to align. You need a little bit of luck. Um, and you also need to have the talent. And yes, some of the teams that I mentioned absolutely have the talent to find a way to beat a quote unquote better team or an MLS team that they come up, uh, come, come up against. And it would be wonderful. It'd be wonderful for the open cup. It would also be wonderful because of the opportunity to play in CONCACAF champions league. And I've argued this before. Um, if you know, MLS and Liga MX are the best domestic leagues in CONCACAF. Where is USL relative to some of these other leagues that we have in, in your Costa Rica's or your Jamaica's or your, your other uh, CONCACAF leagues out there? Because I would say that you can make an argument that USL championship is the third best league in CONCACAF. And if that's the case, they don't have an automatic bid to CONCACAF Champions League. But if that is the case, uh, However you, it happens, and in this case, the only way it would happen is if a USL team were to win the Open Cup, I would love to see that. And so then you're not just testing yourself against others within your country, but you're also testing yourself now against others within your region. And that goes a long way with your brand individually and your brand as a uh, as a league. So good question. And I hope and wish for good things happening on and off the field when it comes to Rochester soccer, because it has meant so much over the decades to the development of soccer and that it has kind of gone by the wayside to a certain extent. Um, you know, that 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 saddens me because we don't ever want to lose markets. And look, there are plenty of men and women that are working hard up there and teams up there uh, that exist. But. As I said, it's not easy. It's not an easy business, uh, American professional soccer. Remember, what else, Mossy? We came close uh, last year to a non-MLS club winning it. Sacramento Republic had that great run to the final. We had their general manager, mm -hmm. Todd Donovan, on the podcast. That was a fun interview. Yep. They ultimately lost to Orlando. Uh, yeah, the only non-MLS club to win it is Rochester Rhinos in 1999, beat Colorado in the final. Um, we have a Twitter question. Uh, Israel asks... If the U.S., Mexico, and Canada were invited to the African Cup of Nations, should we go? Should we go in an idyllic type of world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the next three years, Mossy, I, I, I'm sure you agree with me, any and every opportunity where it is feasible for a U.S. national team, men's national team, to go to a tournament where they are going to get an experience on and off the field— that is beneficial to them developing in order to be as competitive as possible in 2026, yeah, they should take it. Having said that, we understand that AFCON from a date perspective, 
doesn't necessarily work. You would have to be an invited guest and how all that. And when when have we seen the full team together? I mean, we saw the team that, that just showed up in this window. That's not the full team. It didn't it didn't have any of the MLS players. We just mentioned in a few weeks we're going to see an MLS part of the national team. But getting all of the players together in the capacity that we saw for the World Cup in Qatar, where you have the ability to protect everybody's healthy, let's say, and everybody is available. Getting that together, that's very, very difficult to do. Now, we've talked about Copa America, obviously Gold Cups. Uh, any opportunity that this team has, and obviously within reason, to be in a competitive environment before 2026, I think it's going to be beneficial. Keep in mind, the United States... Canada and Mexico will not be participating in CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, the octagonal, the hexagonal, whatever the hell it's going to be called. The U.S. will not be participating in that, which means that they won't have that tournament to go through. It also means it opens them up to participate in other things. However, keep in mind that other areas of the world might be participating in their own. And so you'll have to be invited in to do it. And logistically and timing wise, it has to work. So, yes. I would love to see the United States participate in the African Cup of Nations because I think it would give us competition against better teams in a really, really unique and interesting environment that would be beneficial individually to the players that we have and to collectively as the, the, to the team that we have to go through a tournament like that and to play different types of competition as it relates to what happens in 2026. And unfortunately, I think it's going to be few and far between the opportunities that this team is going to get. Mossy, your thoughts? Well, what's interesting about the Africa Cup of Nations is the, the African Federation keeps trying to acquiesce to the European leagues and move this tournament to the summer. But between COVID and other factors, they've been unable to. The latest issue here, it was supposed to take place in the Ivory Coast in the summer of 2023, the summer coming up. And then apparently because of weather reasons, the rainy season is going to be worse than they anticipated. They have now had to move that to, it's going to be January and February of 2024, which again is going to create this issue with the European leagues. So yeah, from a U.S. national team perspective, you'd be in the MLS offseason and you're not sure you'd be able to get the European-based players. Uh, so I agree with you. In a perfect scenario, yes, but there, there's a lot of logistical issues here that make you wonder what kind of team the U.S. could even put out in that tournament. As we uh, came on air, Mossy, by the way, did you uh, see that yet another FIFA tournament has been uh, moved out of uh, Peru? What is it, the under-17s? Is that what that was? Did you see that, Mossy? I missed it. No. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I have breaking news that Mossy uh, did not know. Let me make sure that I pull it up here. I mean, it is it is happening. FIFA has regrettably uh, withdrawn Peru's hosting rights to the FIFA under-17 World Cup. Um following extensive discussions between FIFA and the Peruvian Football Federation. This is from FIFA Media, and this just came out, uh, you know, well, relatively, you know, a couple, I don't know, a couple hours ago or something like that. So not good, not good, not good. But listen, it's better to do it now and pull the plug and get it to a place that can that can host it correctly than uh, to go down that road uh, uh, too far. You know, you, but, know, you know, it's funny, uh, The I mentioned our last podcast at the Under-20 World Cup got taken out of Indonesia. The odds-on favorite to inherit it now is Argentina. In fact, we might mm -hmm. get confirmation of that any day now. And Argentina had failed to qualify for it, but putting it in Argentina means they will take part as hosts. And I can't complain about that too much because in 2019, 
Brazil failed to qualify to the Under-17 World Cup, which, again, I think was supposed to be in Peru. Uh, they weren't able to host. At the last minute, it got moved to Brazil, which put Brazil in the tournament, and Brazil went on to win the whole thing, and I made no apologies for that, so <laughs> I guess I have to swallow the fact that Argentina, who, by the way, despite failing to qualify, had a very talented team, they immediately become the favorites to win if the tournament takes place in Argentina. Hey, nobody cares how you get the tournament, Mossy. <laughs> all right, just get there. Uh, just get there or get the actual tournament brought to you. Oh, my goodness. All right, anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll finish up the show, and I'll give you my one for the road. Okay, welcome back. It is the end of our show, and at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Um we got some jersey porn. All right. The latest jersey drop from the U.S. men's and women's national team, uh, along with Nike, has happened. And as is all often the case, I got thoughts. I got thoughts. All right. So we're going to start out with uh, there's a blue one and a white one. We're going to start out with the blue one. This will be worn by both the men and women. It is instantly forgettable. It is uh, nothing in terms of being unique or differentiating itself from anything, it does nothing in terms of screaming, let alone even just whispering uh, the United States. And um, if people uh, are gravitated, gravitating to it, it would surprise me. Then the white one has uh, come out, too. Uh, keep in mind that the men and women are going to wear the blue, uh, and the white one is going to be worn by the women, so you will see them this summer in the World Cup wearing this. This is a paint-splattered one. And look, I'm not going to go through it all, but you can go read uh, the inevitable paragraph and poetry that is the <laughs> often and always the description of a New Jersey and why this looks like this and why this does. And this is a reference to this. And this is, you know, the, the artist uh, or the era of art that was referenced. And you can see it in the subtle attributes and blah, 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 blah. All right. Either it's good or it's, it isn't. The white one I actually like in that it is paint splattered. And therefore, it reminds me of the great Stephen Piercy. For those that don't know, he is the lead singer of the greatest rock and roll band ever, which is Rat. And if you go and uh, see their video for Round and Round, he is actually wearing white leather pants that are paint splattered. And so it reminds me of that. I will say this. I don't understand. If you're going to paint splatter a white shirt, why not do it in red, white, and blue? The way it looks from here, it's like black and blue. Throw some red in there. I mean, what's the big deal here? And this gets to a, a bigger picture thing. And I know I have, I have yelled and screamed about this over the years. We're America, okay? We're red, white, and blue. We're stars and stripes. Neither of these jerseys say America to me, okay? And look, I know in this day and age, in this moment in our history, Unfortunately, it gets harder and harder. It seems it gets harder and harder to be full on red, white, and blue. And that saddens me and that angers me. But I don't think regardless of <laughs> your politics or anything like that, a jersey for the U.S. men's and women's national team that doesn't just say, but screams America, I don't think that's too much to ask. And I also don't think 
that it's going to get that much pushback, to be quite honest. As a matter of fact, I think people are going to become more and more desperate for something that unites in terms of being American. And I, so I think, again, we are left with, you know, to a certain extent, some interesting jerseys here, but neither that say this is America. And I want when those men and women walk on the field for everybody watching to know immediately that this is the American national team with absolute pride. And there is no mistaking who is playing there. And I don't think that that is too difficult to do. I do think that it is being avoided purposely. And that, I guess, you know, continues to uh, to sadden me. Uh, if I have to pick between the two, like I said, I picked the uh, the paint splattered. I, you know, when I was a, a kid, Mossy, speaking of paint splattered, because Stephen Piercy, my idol, the lead singer of Rat, wore these pants, uh, these these leather pants that were paint splattered. I went and got a pair of um, uh, of white long johns and went down in my basement and paint splattered them to try to emulate and look like uh, Stephen Piercy. So there's an admission from a 52 year old about uh, red long johns and paint splattering them back in the uh, early 80s and what uh, what I did. So anyway, Mossy, what are your thoughts on these? I'm still trying to get over Jersey porn. <laughs> well, everybody gets excited and, and you should get excited. And look, don't don't think that I don't understand the business behind this. OK, believe me, I, I understand. And if they sell, they sell. And differentiating between others is very, very important. Other otherwise, people are just going to wear the same thing. And so the newest, the next Theoretically, the coolest, I don't know about this one, but theoretically, the coolest one is the one that you have to have. And nowadays, these things cost uh, cost a lot of money. But ultimately, this is what they're going to wear. The kicking the ball is what comes from the people within them. I want them to look good, but if I can't have them look the way that I want, at least I want them to play with, uh, you know, with, with incredible success and with incredible pride. And I'll... I'll I'll settle for that. If I can't have the actual jerseys as part of it too, all right, that's a small price to pay. But on the other side of it, they better kick the ball in the right direction and make me proud when it comes to how they play and uh, ultimately how successful they are. Anything else, my friend? That's it. All right. Well, thank you for uh, tuning in to the State of the Union podcast. Uh, again, uh, we appreciate everybody and everything that uh, that you do, and whether you're you know you're downloading and you're reviewing and you're doing all the different things out there, subscribing, keep doing that. Whether you are watching, whether you are listening, um, keep sending in those questions when it comes to Ask Alexi or on the State of the Union podcast hotline, which again is six five seven five four nine two two nine seven. We will be back later on this week with yet another edition of the State of the Union. For so for myself uh, and for my good friend David Mossy, thank you. Goodbye. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day.